That's right. You are listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse for the latest news, views, and opinions here in our great region of Windsor and Essex County. We remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are those of our co-hosts, do not necessarily reflect the views of any media outlets, political organizations, or other community organizations. We are recording on Tuesday, May 18th, 2021, approximately 9 p.m. Please remember to like our Facebook page and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. With that being said, my name is Al Tashuba, co-hosting and joined remotely with Daniel Ablisser and Dave Sundin and Christine Brooks. Okay, so uh, exciting news this week. We've got a special guest. Um, Ron Dunn, the executive director of the Downtown Mission, is going to join us tonight. There's been a lot of uh, news stories of the past number of months as the Downtown Mission, its plans, its, its attempts to find a new property. Um, it's all gotten a little confusing as to what's going on, so we figured we'd have the expert here, the guy in the know, to tell us what the long-term plan is for the mission, what the latest developments are, and, and what's happening. So without uh, further ado, uh, welcome, Ron. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it and uh, love the opportunity to come on and talk Hi, about the mission anytime. Nice hey. to have you on. Thank you. So, so let's start off with um, what's what's the current status of, of the uh, the mission's search for for a permanent home? We heard about the uh, the, the church property in Victoria being sold and a uh, potential uh, vacating date maybe a year from now. What, what's, what's the status on all that, Ron? Yeah, so 664 Victoria, which has been our home since about 20... 2000, I guess, 2001, maybe. Um, the board of the day bought that church and said, we could serve 100 people from here comfortably. Well, that was, you know, when we weren't serving three to four to five to 600 people a day. So, um, so we've really outgrown that space. So that space, as reported, has been sold. Um, what we announced recently was the closing date, because of all the ups and downs of 850 Olet and where we're going, we're not going, we're going to the library, we're not going to the library, all of that, um, kind of controversy that ensued. We wanted to make people aware that, look, we've definitely sold Victoria, we're moving. So my offices are actually vacating um, the first and second floor of 664 Victoria. We have to be out by June 30th of this year. So just uh, next month, um, that is the, the actual closing date when the new owner will take possession of the building. We have made arrangements, however, to lease back the basement of the, of the facility so that we can continue to serve the meals um, and do some of our basic programming. So life will be different for a little while until we uh, move to a new home. That's ultimately the goal. Um, you may have heard that the, we, we have an offer of purchase and sale at uh, 1540 and 1504 McDougal. So that's the corner of McDougal and Shepherd. Uh, that is the, the current plan. There's a lot of things in our way. Um, not going to say that we have an easy road to hoe. But the board decided unanimously um, to sell our building on Victoria regardless. I was a little bit hesitant because that in itself would, would, could make us homeless ourselves, which wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be good for anybody in the community. Uh, as you said, Dave, uh, on the top of before the program started, you know, the mission's doing um, a lot of the lion's share of the work. And, uh, and so we need a place to be. So um, we're really... We, we really have a lot of eggs in that basket of McDougal and Shepherd. Uh, and what's standing in the way? Zoning, the interim control bylaw that says, hey, mission, you can't go anywhere without our permission. Um, fundraising is still an issue, um, but mostly it's zoning and environmentals. So the environmentals are underway right now, and uh, so is the zoning application. So we're just uh, plugging away. 
yeah, it seems like the problem you're always going to have in relocating is you'll, you'll always have that NIMBY um, aspect where neighbors can say, hey, we love the idea of a mission, but, but not in our neighborhood. We don't want it here. But yeah. McDougal and Shepherd, is that more of a commercial industrial area or is that um, a mixed yeah. bag? It's, uh, well, there is some houses there. Um, the people who live in the area don't want me to say it's not residential, although it's less less, less residential than any other spot that we've, we had looked at before. Uh, in fact, uh, we originally had an offer of sale on a purchase of a, an old school on Tuscarora. It was deemed by the city to be an inappropriate location for a shelter uh, because of the density of the population there. Oddly enough, it's a block away from what will become the women's shelter now. So, um, so there is that, but, um, you know, all of that aside, that location on Victoria or on, uh, Olet and Olet, Shepherd and McDougall is the preferred site, uh, you know, of Councillor Bordland, for example, uh, a number of other councillors who I've had the, the pleasure of talking to, um, it just, there's a lot in the way of that, of that location. Plan B, um, really is we already own the corner of Olet and Elliot. So there's a one acre, one and a half acre plot of land there, which is um, the the former Joker's Mother's Pizza area. If you're if you're as old as me, you'll remember those spots. Um, so that's Plan B. I mean, if we can't get through the obstacles of McDougal and Shepherd, we already own the property, so it does not need to be rezoned. It does not fall under the interim control bylaw. It's actually cheaper, faster, and probably a better location in terms of those that we serve. But as you said, David, it's not, uh, nobody wants us in their backyard. That's so, right. That's also been the problem, it seems. Yeah. Ron, first of all, again, thank you for joining us. I want to commend you on having the real estate wherewithal of knowing the region, how to best serve your organization and having different options uh, in your back pocket and ready to move, knowing that things could be very liquid, very flexible. And you, you know, at the bottom line is it falls on you to be ready regardless of the circumstances. So it seems to me that you've got these alternatives in place. Uh, was this always like the plan to have a backup plan to the backup plan? Or was it just like finding properties and saying, you know what, just in case here, I'll have this one just in case. What was the mindset going along? Well, you know, the mindset was we needed a spot. And, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of places large enough that would accommodate us. We originally, if you, if you go back to the original, we bought 880 OLET, which is right next door to the library. That's um, right, you did. Yep. Yeah, and then the, the engineers decided that that um, physically couldn't hold the amount of people we needed it to. Um, that led us to the library. We all know how that went. Um, the library really was, is a fantastic building for us in terms of size and space and everything else, but it really just wasn't supported. The mistake that I made, Al, was that I didn't, I didn't go to the community first, right? I bought it. I, I, I called the mayor, I put an offer in, I bought it. I angered a ton of people and, and I, I get it, you know? Um, I don't think everyone was aware of why they were angry at me, but they were angry. Some were angry because I, I stole the property. I didn't pay enough for it. Although we did pay appraised value. Um, some were mad because it was the iconic library. You know, some were mad that the library itself had, was closing. Um, so that in itself created this vacuum which dried up my donor base uh, for two years. We, we lost uh, significant funds from March of 2018 when we made the announcement all the way until we lost the announcement. <laughs> um, and then there was those that are mad that I, that I profited from the library sale. You know, um, you're in real estate. I think that, mm -hmm. you know, the assignment clause 
look at, I'm usually the dumbest guy in every room. So if I could figure it out, a group of lawyers should have figured it out too, right? And no, so listen, we, we use the assignment. Assignment clause has been very popular here in Windsor where they buy it thing and they assign it with renovations or not. Sure. I mean, I, I think you've done some very smart business and real estate transactions. Um, you know, in real estate, you know who your client is. Your client is your organization. Your fiduciary is to your organization. I wouldn't overly feel bad if you've made smart moves that, you know, protect and, and enhance the value and the service of the downtown mission. So I don't feel bad about that. I, I yeah. just business. You just were in the so right place at the right time with the right vision. And that's the way it goes. It's a free market. And for clarity, I don't feel bad at all. Good. I, I serve the poor and that's, that's what my role is. That's, that's, been, that's what I believe is my calling, um, which sounds a little hokey to some, but that's, that's how I feel. So, you know, I made $600,000 off the library. I went across the street. I paid 1.2 million for a lot that had been sitting empty for, I don't know, 20 years, probably um, 819 Olette. And I do remember Jokers, by the way, it was owned by Paul Borelli and actually Mayor <laughs> Dilkins used to work there. That's how long. Okay. There you go. So there's the connection. So long story short, I didn't, I didn't plan to have a backup plan, but I needed one. And so as the executive director, um, as somebody who cares about the people I serve, I do have a duty and a responsibility to those folks to make sure I get the best, act in their best interest. Unfortunately, not everyone agreed with it. That's okay. We're getting past that, I hope. Um, so now here we are, you know, McDougal and Shepherd, honestly, is not my favorite location in terms of, you know, there's a lot of great things about it. It's a big space. We can grow into it. Transitional mm -hmm. housing. We have, uh, we have some container homes planned, uh, some tiny homes, but, you know, unfortunately we have to get through city council and the planning department and, and things like that. Uh, it's been an expensive, long, drawn-out process. I could never be a developer. I, I just, I couldn't do it. Um, the, the process in which this happens is, is, to me, backwards. We're being asked to spend money, you know, get this study and get that study. I'm like, well, why don't you approve the location first, and then I'll go get that study. That's not how it works. I got to spend the money up front. So that's the process we're in. Um, I don't understand it. I don't like it, but that's what we're doing. So right now, we've just ordered the environmental studies, you know, that's almost $30,000. Mm. Luckily, um, there was already environmental studies done, but the planning department rejected them and said they were, too, they were outdated. The, the, the requirements have changed. So luckily we have some friends in the industry. Um, one of those friends is donating $10,000 worth of, of uh, work towards the environmental study. So that brings our cost down. But the point is we have to get through the environmental study and then we have to get through the, the zoning change, which we hope will be, um, will be shortly. The truth is, as always, we're up against the clock, right? Now mm -hmm. on June 30th, the clock starts ticking. I have to be out of Victoria, preferably in eight months, but the longest I can go is about 12 months. Mm -hmm. So that, that leaves me very little time to finalize McDougal and build or scrap McDougal and build on Olette. You know, and just, just for clarity, the, the Olette or the project on, on McDougal and Shepherd is going to run us you know, right now it's looking about $7 million. Um, that's, that's a ton. Now we have about $3.6 million worth of assets. You know, we own Dufferin and we, we have a spot on, on um, Wyandotte where the Windsor Youth Center is. And of course, Victoria, and then we'll sell the lot and 875 Olette. So, so we have four or five properties in play that uh, we will liquidate and, and that'll help us, you know, tear down some of that debt. Um, but overall, there's a, there's a group of 20 to 25 people who have said, hey, 
we're willing to help you move if you get off Olette. <laughs> so, wow. okay. so yeah, so, I mean, I could take that, I could take that really badly, or I can take that as a, as a blessing and say, okay, here's an opportunity for us to build exactly what we need um, in a location that isn't, you know, it's a little far, it's one kilometer from the core, um, from where we sit right, you know, now on Victoria, but it's, you know, it's not horrible. I, I asked some of our guests, I said, look, you know, is this going to be a problem? And they said, Ron, as long as you keep feeding us, we'll find you. <laughs> yeah, so, I think so. Good for you. So, so we're, we're going to go ahead and, and it's going to allow us to build a proper facility that's COVID friendly. Now we've, we've got a lot of learnings through, through COVID, right? Um, so, you know, get through the red tape, fundraise like a maniac really quickly. We really don't have much time. Um, if I don't have things ready to go, and I mean uh, pledges in hand and, and city approvals, I'm going to say end of August, then, then we're getting really, really close to having to decide to be on Olette because at the end of the day, we need time to build wherever that's going to be. So let's talk a bit about that timeline, Ron. And so I guess my first question for you is just losing the first and second floor of the, the church building, we'll call it. Is there going to be a gap in services there or what's the plan once you vacate those floors? Sure. And that's, that's a great, uh, great fair question, Daniel. You know, we fill gaps, we don't create gaps. So in fact, we've um, already moved out anything that was on the first and second floor in terms of programming to the library. Uh, we've, we have a one-year lease on the library. So we, uh, we've been there since uh, ooh, probably February, I guess, a little bit of storage, but we were using the first and second floors of Victoria as our education programs you know, clothing, food bank, that kind of stuff, or uh, clothing bank rather. So we've just moved things around. No services will be lost. Um, that's certainly never our intention. So we're, we're moving our administrative offices to the administrative area of the former public library. Um, that'll, that'll be um, sometime in the next 30 days. So you can imagine uh, life is pretty crazy right now, but it's, um, you got to plan to plan, right? So we got to, you got to work the plan, plan the work. And that's what we're doing. So we're, we're ready to go. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, rolling up the sleeves and late nights, but we'll get it done. And, and to your point, Daniel, um, absolutely no programs will be affected by the move. And so in terms of, so the, the community knows, in terms of your overnight space for your guests, where is that currently? And is that going to move or how does that work right now? Yeah. So right now we're open from uh, eight in the morning, eight at night until eight in the morning on at. Uh, 875 Olette Avenue, which is the brown building across from the old library, adjacent to the empty lot that we talked about. So we have a 103 bed facility there, men, women, youth, and families. Um, right now, because of COVID, we're limiting it to 80. Um, that was the will of the health unit, which we, we agreed was, a, was an okay number. Um, so that's not affected. Uh, it will be, obviously, when we move to, if assuming McDougall and Shepherd works out, we will, um, we will move there. Uh, which will include the, the overnight shelter. If we don't, uh, if, if plan B becomes plan A, which is build on the corner of Elliott and Olette, then the shelter itself will stay at 875 Olette, which is why I don't need to ask permission from council. Okay, that, that makes sense. So you would not be building the shelter facility on Correct. that corner. You'd be building your kitchen facility and your office facilities on, on the, the Joker's corner. That's correct. That is correct. Yeah, a little church space. Um, you know, our warehousing on Dufferin, because we want to, we want to divest of that project of that uh, particular building. Um, 
we rescue about a million and a half pounds of produce every year from the county, bring it back to the city, redistribute it to at-risk schools and other agencies. And so we need space to be able to do that. And so we'll, we'll have to um, either keep Dufferin or build something similar on, on Olet. And so in terms of the McDougal property, if you get, let's say from the time that you get rezoning and lifting of the interim control bylaw, obviously you've got to get your, your, your engineering plans in place, get shovels in the ground, get your, I don't know if you tender it or what you do to get your contracts in place. What's your timeline from, I guess, the time that you get your zoning and interim control bylaw approval until you could have doors open for your guests? Well, we, we only have a year. So how am I going to make that happen? That's a whole other miracle onto itself. But um, at, as of June 30th, the clock starts starts ticking and, and it's ticking loud and it's ticking fast. So uh, every waking moment will go to all of those things that you talked about. Um, if we go to McDougal and Shepherd, we are able to do a prefab building. So that, that makes it a little bit easier um, as far from what I understand anyways. Um, and so we're also connecting to the, the existing plaza that's there. So um, one of our concerns, quite frankly, is, you know, will those donors that said they would kind of join us to be off of Olette, will they still be there, you know, when this project goes live? Uh, it can't go live without them. So, you know, we'll have to see what that looks like. Um, and then, you know, the cost of construction is up, you know, some, someone told me it's up 300%. So I, I hope that's not the case, but um, whatever it's up, we're gonna have to deal with, that may shrink the size of the project and we'll have to do it in phases. But again, you know, these this group of donors who have been very kind and and listen some of them for various reasons some just don't want us next to them so they want us over there on, on mcdougall that's okay i really don't care what their logic is um you know and and some of them are just saying look it would be a better spot for you um to be in a bigger area zoned kind of commercially um i don't disagree entirely you know it, it's a big space it's three and a half four acres It'll allow us to grow. It'll allow us to give people some space to, 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 you know, be in an area that's safe and controlled, but also in the city, but not, you know, in the core. So, um, yeah, lot, lots of moving parts for sure. And the final question that I have for you to change gears a little bit is, I, you can disagree with me if you want, but you are the face of this organization. And, and I think even when we, when you were just talking about the, uh, the sale of the library, you're saying I made $600,000. Now I think that we know that means the mission, but, and then you said, and I bought that lot, the, uh, the Joker's lot for $1.2 million. And I think that for better or worse, you're the face of this organization. And, and as you said, there've been some, some challenges over the past couple of years with, uh, you know, with the library project and things like that. Do you have concerns that maybe you are too big of a personality for this organization? I mean, especially with the the real estate deals. I talked to somebody who kind of called you the monopoly man. It's like, well, I got a property here. I got a property here. So I guess the question that I have for you and not to be, look, I think that you do great and important work, but are you too big for this organization as the face of it? Or is that just a necessary reality of having to do the fundraising and having to run this organization without government help? Well, I think it's a fair question, Daniel, and um, I appreciate the way in which you phrased it. Um, I'm not offended easily. So, so let me answer the question as honestly as I really can. When You're not the first person to call me out on saying I versus us or we. Um, the fact is this, when you live, breathe, eat an organization, 
um, 24 hours a day for the last 10, 12 years, uh, first as a board member, and then as a fundraiser, and now as the executive director. I honestly, I struggle myself with seeing a separation between me and the mission. Um, when I'm out, I'm always on. I can't ever just be me because I'm always that guy from the mission. Love me or hate me. You know, I've had people pay for my breakfast before they ducked out of the restaurant. And I've had people stand in the restaurant and call me all kinds of things because, you know, they're offended that I take a salary. They're offended that I, that I bought property. You know, I've heard the monopoly um, um, analogy um, from another podcast host uh, who I won't name, but um, you know, the, the fact is this, I can't apologize for what I do because I do it for other people. My salary doesn't go up when I get a new building. My salary doesn't go up when I um, merge with, with another um, organization or when I, you know, when I stay up, you know, 16 hours a day getting stuff done, I'm not compensated, right? So to me, the mission is me and I'm the mission. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. I guess that's up for my board to, <laughs> to decide. As of now, they, they agree with it. I am the face of the mission. I think when people think of the mission, they think about me. When they think of me, they think about the mission. Um, I think it is hard to separate. I, maybe, we sh maybe I should be separate and maybe for my own, my own well-being, I should be separate. But um, you know, people say to me, I'll be out with my wife and they'll say, hey, I see you on TV. And my wife says, yeah, that's where I see him too. <laughs> so there's a lot of sacrifice that goes along with, with being the executive director of an organization that is largely supported by the community, but not by government, um, local government specifically, and, but any, any level of government, right? Um, Pre-COVID, you know, we weren't on, on the radar. Um, what I've learned through COVID, though, is that we're so necessary. When, when everything was shut down during the first shutdown, we were literally the only agency open. It was like tumbleweeds out my back door. No bathrooms, no restaurants were open. It was, we became that much more important. The other thing that I like to say is that we have, um, for all the people that, that don't like what we do, every dollar that comes through our door um, fundraised is a, is a vote of confidence for, for what we do do. And um, yeah, you know what? I've made mistakes. I'm the first one to admit that I'm not, uh, I don't know everything, right? Um, I'll never admit that to my wife, but it's true. So the reality is this. I do what I can, the best that I can. And I, I, I make no apologies. You know, sometimes I'm loud. I get it because I'm passionate. You know, I can't stand by and watch injustice. I can't. Not when it comes to the people who I've been charged with, with helping. And, you know, until that charge is taken away from me or I'm voted off the island, I will continue to, to do what I do with, with as much... Uh, you know, flair or whatever you want to call it as I, as I can muster. It's well, not maybe, easy. Maybe, maybe we'll call it passion and you're certainly passionate about it. And frankly, I think that from what you've said, like, look, nobody else is signing up to do this for 16 hours a day. So, uh, so, uh, so I, I think we all commend the work that you do. Um, definitely. Uh, uh, Christine. Yes. Well, I, yes, definitely. We commend your work. And I think uh, in fact, uh, uh, you are the voice uh, for for many people who really don't have a voice in our community, and I think that's the the most important thing. Um, I think, uh, especially in our in our suburban neighborhoods, people like to pretend and live thinking that there are no 
that this misery just does, we, we, we relegate it to people like you and to missions and to and try to pretend that life is really like a fairy tale. And recently I've been uh, biking, um, well, daily, and I go through the downtown. And yesterday in particular, I went right downtown and I think I was blown away. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon and um, just the number, the number of people who are evidently um, hurting, hurting very, very much. So maybe you could, and, and I have to say it, it was, uh, it was remarkable what the mission did for, uh, for these people, for the homeless, for the uh, addicts, whoever they are out there who need help, especially during COVID. COVID was a, another twist to it all, wasn't it? But I'm, I'm just wondering where are all these people coming from? How is it that our very, I mean, we are, I think, a very wealthy society. We are, uh, you know, we were doing quite well before COVID. Has it really grown that much over COVID or was it already starting to grow before? And are, are there things that we should be looking at in, in order to better this situation? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack there, Christina. You know, the reality is this, the problem's been growing on a regular steady basis for the last, I'd say, five years. COVID brought it to light. Many people who had those blinders on it, including, including people in our city um, or city officials, there's a lot more interest and energy going into homelessness now than there was pre-COVID. So if there's a silver lining at all, this might be it. Um, I think there's there's a lot more energy being focused, which is fantastic. So, you know, where are they coming from? I think there's a big uh, misconception that, you know, people are bringing them from Toronto and so that I can increase my funding as if somehow they were tied together. But um, I can assure you that's not the case. Um, I chair the Alliance to End Homelessness. All these problems, you know, Christine, boy, <laughs> if I can answer that question, I'd, I'd write a book and retire. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I know how not to solve it. Keep doing what we've been doing. <laughs> it's not working. You know, keep keep electing government who sees it as a um, a passing gesture versus, you know, something that needs to be handled head on. You know, one of my colleagues in another city called it a twindemic, right? The pandemic, of course, but addiction and homelessness and mental health, those are things that are so real and so prevalent in our society today. Um, putting our head in the sand and, you know, building, building a, a small building, you know, every 35 years for housing isn't going to work in our city. It's not going to work in any city. Uh, although I applaud the effort, you know, we need to do more as a city, as a community. Um, there's a lot of, um, I think the, the library has taught me that there's a lot of animosity and there's a lot of, of egos and there's a lot of just in general um, unwillingness to just say, okay, look, that's, that happened. Let's move on. And, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but it, it seems to be the, the issue that that's been following the mission for, for the last couple of years. But at the end of the day, look, the mission exists because we have to. We're the only low barrier shelter in Essex County. The city commissioned a study called the Emergency Shelter Review. It identified that the mission was carrying the bulk of the weight for the last X amount of years. It identified that um, we need to do more as a community together. 
So once we get to that spot, Christine, once we are able to put all those things aside and say, what's in the best interest of those we mutually serve, then, then we can tackle the problem at least with a little bit more, you know, earnest. I, I don't think it's going to go away. I don't, I really, I'd love to believe it, it will, but I don't think it will, not at their current trajectory. Um, listen, you know, kids, we lost a 28-year-old young lady, not at the mission, but she was a guest of the mission. She had been housed recently. She overdosed on fentanyl. Until we get those types of things under control, 28 years old. You know, my son is 27, so it really hit home. Um, until we look at our children and our parents, like these are parents and grandparents. This isn't, you know, 22-year-old kids out of control. This is everybody. This is Asians and Blacks and Whites and, you know, every culture. These are educated people. You know, I had a doctor from Japan stay on my floor a few years ago now. But, you know, these are things that we have to get a grip on. We have to solve somehow. We have to put our heads together and figure out how do we help these people who have just slid down this rabbit hole. You know, I speak to parents every day. Can you, you know, have you seen my son? Have you seen my daughter? Yeah, I have. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sorry to report, but, um, terrible. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It really I is really, I mean, I, I'm a teacher and I feel that we are not teaching our children enough about the dangers in particular of, uh, uh, drug use. It has been made into something very banal, very ordinary. It has been promoted really in movies and in in things like that and i'm not saying that we're just you know imitating the movies that i love movies as well but i'm just saying that we haven't gone to the other side and shown the whole trajectory that is possible and that's the 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 path that so many are taking and that has caused our police to have to take uh, to to carry uh, the, the what is the pro product again naloxone naloxone and so this is this is all part of it and i think we need to educate certainly that would be one thing that i think from my end as yeah. as a teacher i think we need to do that i'm hoping to educate the public here because ron i, I it, it concerns me that you're getting so much heat from uneducated people giving you a hard time about the downtown mission the cost your salary taxpayers money let me make it very simple Nobody is disputing the great service and uh, that you are providing to the community, whether it be a meal, a shelter, uh, helping people off uh, drugs, the care, the service, that's needed in every society. The only question then is, is it done with the downtown mission or what's the alternative? Our local governments would do it. Let me tell you something. The local government would have three Ron Dunn's at three times the salary with more bureaucracy, with less service, closing at five o'clock instead of a guy like Ron Dunn that's working 24 7, 16 hours a day, does it for the passion. And it's, it's just crazy that you're taking so much heat for what you're doing. The alternative would be our taxpayer money would go through a program at the city of Windsor and it would be triple the cost. And it would, you know, it's just nonsense. So Ron, hold your head up high. You the man, appreciate what you're doing. The whole city should appreciate what you're doing and just keep doing it. And you're doing God's work and helping the poor and helping the, the less privileged and you're, you're doing great. Just keep it going. Thanks, Al. I, I appreciate those kind words for sure. So, so Ron, before we wrap up the first half, why don't you um, tell us about, um, what we can do to uh, to donate because uh, it sounds like right now you need funding 
maybe need volunteers as well. And maybe send us a couple links to put up on our, our, uh, our Facebook page, social media mm-hmm. page to, uh, to get the word out. Um, tell us what we need to do to, to, to get the word out there on fundraising and, and volunteers. Sure. So, you know, just to, to be on the volunteer topic for a minute, in post-COVID, or sorry, pre-COVID, we had 1,129 active volunteers. Today, we have less than, I think, 100, 150. So, you know, that means there's more, more work for my very limited staff to do. Now, we are serving less people right now because other things have opened up, which are, which are helping, you know, unclog the clog, which is great. Um, funds are always necessary. Last year, we raised uh, four, almost $4.2 million, um, 64% of that. So 64% of that came directly from um, people, you know, regular people, 20 bucks at a time. You know, we did get some funding, 14% came from the federal government for in the, through the city of Windsor in the, um, in the form of um, COVID relief, you know, paying for, for uh, extra staff and things like that. We also obviously run right grants that was 13%. And 9% we've listed as other because we do have um, we do have some tenants and things like that in our building. So, but how to help, you know, become a monthly donor. 10 bucks a month. Most people don't feel it. 20 bucks a month, where whatever people, whatever level people are at, but that would be extremely helpful. It helps us to budget, right? Um, the other thing too, I don't know how much time we have, but we partnered with Jubsy. I don't know if you guys have heard of Jubsy.com, but Jubsy is a, a food ordering app that was started by, you know, Thanos, Zacantus and his sister Maria and, and you know, Thanos' wife Heidi at uh, Sofos here on Jefferson and Tecumseh. So it's a made in Windsor solution, which I love. Um, I was able to partner with them and say, look, why don't you let, instead of charging restaurants, which they didn't want to do, they want to help restaurants. Why don't they make a 5% donation to the mission? So that uh, every time somebody orders a cheeseburger, I make a buck, 85 cents, whatever it is. Since uh, December 19th, when we launched, that's raised about $20,000 for us. And that's, uh, that's amazing because, you know, we can work all year to do a golf tournament and, and make 10, right? Which we're appreciative of, but this is passive income that, you know, as I'm, as I'm on this chat with you guys having a great time, someone's ordering food and, uh, and making a 5% donation. The restaurants then are getting a, um, a receipt at the end of the year, tax receipt. So it's really helping a lot of people. And uh, the slogan is that uh, support local, everybody eats. Um, so I'm just asking, you know, pushing that out, you know, become a monthly donor if you can volunteer, certainly if you can, but also if you don't care about any of those things and you're just going to order food, why not choose the only app that brings the money back to your community? And that's jobsy.com. Thanks. Thanks for that. Well, with that, we'll, uh, we'll go into our, our first break. Uh, thank you again, uh, Ron, for joining add, us. Oh, David, go ahead, Al. David, let me just add one other thing. I'm on the downtown mission website. And they actually have a donation page, which is crystal clear, right, Ron? Yep. Look, looks great. Um, so I'm actually going to do one right now in memory and, and donation. You can put it under someone's name. So I'm going to put this in memory of my dad for $200. And, you, you know, he's always helping out. So I'm going to fill that all out. And I recommend everyone goes to it. And it's a downtown mission. And this I'll do cool. one. My husband had asked me to do a donation uh, mm-hmm. for his birthday. So that's what I'm going to be doing. There you go. Thank you so and much. What, what the hey, I'll do it too. So look, look, Ron, you just made some money tonight appearing on uh, a whip recording. So thank awesome. you. Awesome. Look at that. Thank you all so much. Very nice. Okay. Well, with that, we'll go into our first break and uh, we'll see you on the other side. And welcome back to the second half of Windsor's Inside Pulse. So uh, thankfully, we don't have much in the way of COVID news this week. We'll call it border news instead. So 
on last week's show, you heard about uh, the the fact that um, the city was was pressuring um, Health Canada to to allow for the border to reopen um, or to to uh, to get people across the border to get shots or or to have the, sh the shots shipped in. At that time, it seemed like it might have been some Health Canada bureaucracy, but a recent Windsor Star story has revealed that it might actually be deals that um, Pfizer and Moderna have signed with the U.S. government that. Uh, make it difficult for them to then ship that that vaccine to other countries but there might be a workaround so according to the story um, local officials are hoping they discovered a practical pathway to get surplus vaccine in michigan into the arms of windsor residents and they cite the fact that someone in the city has already tried it namely the mayor's 17 year old son apparently his son obtained a letter from a doctor here in windsor to say to the u.s side that uh, he was crossing for an essential medical purpose he was allowed uh, into the U.S. to get that second uh, shot and was unable to come back across the border without needing to quarantine. But as the uh, the mayor said, um, you know, this might be a, a unique experience because his son is a dual citizen. And so getting to Michigan wasn't a problem. And there's, there's you know, basically this, this might just be a one off, but certainly some hope that maybe people can get into to, to Michigan in order to get those surplus vaccines. That being said, it seems like we already have uh, quite a bit um, uh, of people getting the shots in their arms here regardless. So uh, anyone want to weigh in on, on this story, Daniel? Yes, this is an interesting update. I mean, certainly it confirms that at least part of the reason that the mayor went across three weeks ago was for his son to get vaccinated. Now, there's still some question as to whether or not that was just part of something else going on, because I think in the CBC article, the mayor basically says, I've got to go back again in three months with my son and I'll do it. Nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to tell me otherwise when my, when my son needs a medical appointment. So it does sound like what happened three weeks ago wasn't just to get the vaccine, but it's certainly interesting that, that this news is out and that apparently that because his son then had to go back three weeks later, because in the States we're on the three week schedule rather than the four month schedule, um, apparently uh, the mayor's son and the mayor's wife were able to come back across it was treated as an essential trip and uh, and they weren't required to quarantine. So that's interesting to see. Apparently the hospital has kind of put out some information saying, well, if you get this letter from your doctor before going over and then proof that that's the only thing you did in the States, the border, the Canadian border might let you come back and not, uh, not quarantine. I don't know, my, my personal view is that mites are not great when you're dealing with government and health but um, but I guess that does give some people an option. And frankly, I think that the more people that use that option, the better, because that's going to be less vaccines we have to administer here. So uh, so it's certainly an option. And if we could get some more of a comfort letter from the feds saying, yes, if this is what you do, you will be OK and not have to quarantine. I think this could be very helpful in our community. Al? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we're at the stage of anytime, any place, anyhow, any means, you can get a vaccine here, over the border, pay for it, what, just get it, just get it. Who cares? If you get it and some of the, oh, you missed the line, okay, so then there's one less person in line, it's over, this whole waiting is over, just get it. If you want it, you have a means to get it, go get it, and that's the end of it. The important thing is that, in fact, just across the, the river, less than two kilometers away, there are uh, doses that are just about expiring. And 
it would be shameful uh, if if they they were left to expire. And we have people here who could really use them. I think we are highly motivated in this area to get the vaccines. And uh, frankly, if we can just drive over, drive back, uh, I think there are many, many people who are just waiting to do that. Um, yes, we don't stay over there. We don't get our gas over there. We just go to the uh, to get the shot and that's it. And it would alleviate uh, the problems here since we do have a waiting period to get the shipments of vaccines here. Um, unfortunately, it also reflects that in fact, our neighbors in Detroit are not getting vaccinated, which in the long term is really, really sad, I think, because I mean, even uh, for their economy, for getting back, I mean, are Canadians going to go back uh, to, to, to the States to, to uh, buy things, to go shopping, to go to their um, venues, when they know that in fact, only 20 some percent of people are, are being vaccinated really there. Okay, well with, with that then, um, Al, why don't you tell us about uh, the most recent news with Transit Windsor and masks? Well, the article is fantastic because they really highlight the rights of society. Is this rights of individual human rights for transport and being treated, treated fairly and equitably without being constrained with their health? Or is this labor rights? And the article is wear a mask or don't board the bus. Transit Windsor rules. And this is a Brian Cross article, very recent, May 14th. And, you know, this is, man, this is a tough one. On the one hand, you know, it deals with human rights. People should be able to uh, travel and be treated uh, equally, especially if you have a medical exemption. Um, that was the original position as a human rights violation for refusing service to a person with a disability uh, who was not able to wear a mask. And at the same time, you know, I just finished doing my uh, protocols for uh, the school board. And number one is you could refuse work if you feel that something's unsafe. So from a labor perspective, if you feel it's unsafe, everyone should be wearing a mask and your risk for uh, being infected with COVID is increased because someone else is not wearing a mask, whether they're exempt or not, you know, they made it a point. So under the Canadian uh, Labor Code, uh, this is related to a worker situation. And it says here that they're looking out for the general public. So I'm going to leave my comments from the end for the end, uh, giving my viewpoints, but I wouldn't mind hearing from the lawyers on our panel uh, how, you know, legally, this is like two legislations battling each other, as it says in the article, and I agree with that. I'll give you my opinion at the end. So, yeah, I, I think, Al, you set that up well, but lawyers always have fun when you have regimes that conflict. And frankly, lawyers make a lot of money when you have regimes that conflict. Because in this case, you have the, the federal labor code saying that the bus drivers have a right to be protected versus the potential that somebody's going to bring a human rights complaint that you are denying me service and, not, and failing to accommodate for my disability that requires me not to wear a mask. So the labor board, the federal labor board, or whatever board this is, basically said, nope, the, the labor rights Trump and Transit Windsor, you should just tell your passengers, nope, they can't board without a mask. And if they can't wear a mask for some reason, too bad, so sad, go find a, uh, go, go find another way to get around. I, I guess if we, if we are of the view that at this point in the pandemic, the mask is still so critical, I think that is the right answer. But 
that might not be the answer that ultimately the uh, the federal human rights tribunal gives and that's that's we we see these things in a number of different situations you know i've seen where a wsib board says this person's not injured they can return to work and then they still bring a human rights complaint saying no i can't return to work and both boards basically reach opposite con conclusions and it's one of the reasons that ontario is frankly a pretty awful place to be an employer um be because you're stuck in these regimes my personal view, I mean, to me, it's, for instance, a person who's blind can't drive. That's not a, that's not a, uh, that's not a violation of their human rights. It's not discriminatory against them. It's just the reality of the situation. And if we are of the view that these masks still remain so important, then the health should trump the, you know, the, the harm that some person is going to cause because they potentially have some medical condition where they can't wear a mask. So I think it's the right decision, but I will say that I'm not sure that it's the final decision on this and the human rights tribunal may have their own view and put the city between, you know, two conflicting rulings. Dave? Yeah, I think we're going to have to wait and see who, who if anyone uh, graduates us to a human rights complaint and see what uh, the outcome is. But I certainly sympathize with the city's position, uh, Transit Windsor's position, which seems to be um, that they must be having some sort of problem with people claiming to have a, a medical exemption and refusing to wear a mask on that basis without any proof and not being able to ask for any proof. So it seems like, you know, they're just taking the approach of a blanket rule, fine, no mask, no, no service. Um, and I've heard some anecdotal evidence from, from those in the retail industry saying that people are walking without masks on. When asked the mask, they say, oh, I have a medical exemption, screw off. And in, in their mind, at least they clearly don't, but again, they, they can't press it further. So so it's an ongoing problem, and it just seems that there's a segment of the population that refuses um, to look out for the better good and are convinced that right, their individual rights trump everything. So I think you did frame it well, um, Al, about what this, this debate's all about. Um, but in the legal forum, it's still going to have to play out and see which regime ends up um, trumping uh, what should have happened here. It was interesting to see that, in fact, the Ontario College of Family Physicians seemed to say that um, there were very few conditions that justify an exemption from wearing a face mask for reasons of prevention. And so that was an interesting thing to hear. Uh, the second thing is, how come we are now thinking of having a um, travel passport, but we can't have a passport to be exempted from the mask? So, I mean, yes, it has to do with medical conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But if you, what you are doing can affect someone else, in this case, it's the um, conductor, the bus conductor, um, the bus driver. So then I think maybe in fact, uh, it really needs, and there are alternatives. You can take some alternative and maybe it should be at the same price as the, a bus fare uh, where it's, uh, you know, because in fact, that, that, uh, that is important that there be an alternative. There is an alternative transportation that is available or that, yeah. Don't have it's to wear not. a mask for those bird scooters. That's right. <laughs> um, and and there are they're alternatives to masks as well. Maybe that's another workaround. Like I know people who validly have issues with, with uh, severe asthma and when it's uh, humid out, they have a problem with the, the masks, but they wear plastic face shields instead. Um, so, you know, but I think the people that are refusing is refusing to wear anything at all. That's really the problem. That's right. All right. Well, here's my viewpoint. So when you're exempted to park in the handicapped parking spot, you have to identify yourself and get a certificate that has handicap right on their park. So first of all, if you're going to be exempt, it can't be just 
on a faith basis, you should have some certificate to prove that you're exempt. Number one. So now if you're dealing with, is the person exempt? And by the way, if you're exempt, well, we, you can't get service because you're not wearing a mask. But if the person's exempt and he is entitled on a human rights not to be excluded upon public service, his tax dollars pay for it and so forth, um, I got to tell you, I think the original ruling is correct simply because there's an inherent risk from bus drivers or people who are putting themselves out in the public, whether it be the common flu or whether it be someone sneezed on you accidentally or whether somebody, uh, you know, touched your arm and they had a blood and it's something. There's an inherent risk working with the public. Teachers go through it as well that, you know, you could try to protect. Can you protect the bus driver a little bit better? Can there be a back section that um, uh, people who aren't wearing masks maybe can go in an enclosed uh, spot for plexiglass? I will tell you this, any alternative of infrastructure, whether you build a special plexiglass section in the bus for, for in the back of the bus where people are not wearing masks, so at least they're, they're contained, or even if you were to pay for their taxis for the rest of the year until COVID and everyone's vaccinated, will be cheaper than spending money on the lawyers fighting this thing. <laughs> it's, it's time to invest in double-decker buses. Those without masks can sit up top in the open air. Yeah. There you go. I mean, the lawyers are going to... I mean, I mean, yeah. Oh, we're going to build a Koenim room in the buses. Listen, it will still be cheaper than the millions of dollars with the lawyers who make arguing which legislation... First of all, aren't we all getting vaccinated? This is going to be old news anyways. So, not, you know what? Not the anti-maskers. Not the anti-maskers. Anti I was just going to say that too, Dave. Yeah. What do you mean? What, what do you mean the anti-maskers? The anti-maskers don't have to be vaccinated if they don't want to, in the sense that the people who are vaccinated should be protected. I've never understood this. People who are getting vaccinated, why, if, if the vaccinations are so good and so great, what do you care if someone else is not vaccinated? Who cares? What about the people with immune deficiencies? What about them? Well, if, if, if for, certain for a certain segment of the society, the vaccine is not going to work on them. And so the challenge for those people is that they may be they may want to be vaccinated they may even frankly be vaccinated but it doesn't work on them and and so while i am generally opposed to mandatory vaccines i think that there is a subset of society that have immune deficiency syndromes and are at higher risk and so if the community as a whole does not get vaccinated it puts them at greater risk. That okay, I but but what's stopping them from always wearing a mask or a face shield or an oxygen mask or whatever they want? People should be able to do what they want without impeding on other people or demanding this and that. The vaccines are out there. People who want them will take them. People who don't want them shouldn't be forced. I understand the whole travel restriction. I think that's going to fade out. But as far as the bus issue here, I, I think there's ways to accommodate everybody yeah i Either, think it's going to be an old news story within a few months but uh but it's well, uh, i think there's another problem too if you don't vaccinate enough people then you have this uh, uh this uh, virus continuing to spread and continuing and continuing and uh, provoking little waves i think as long as you're at 70 percent but then it goes and it mutates and so then we're 
we're back to yeah, but that that can happen anyways. I mean, it can mutate. Yeah, you can keep coming up with viruses. Less so, less so. If we could just get it right down, we could get eradicated. You're never. You're not going to get a hundred percent vaccination. I think. I think society of most could maybe expect eighty, and they're saying that herd immunity will happen at seventy. And not everybody has to. And not everybody could point the finger at the others. Let everybody live and make their own choices. All right. Segwaying from Al's crazy conservative opinions to Chris Vanderdolen's Freedom of choice? Come on. That's not crazy. <laughs> to Chris Vanderdolen's crazy conservative opinions. Oh, yeah. They're the same. The, uh, the integrity commissioner is back in the town of Essex. And the integrity commissioner put out his report last week or maybe two weeks ago, it came to Essex Council, I believe, on Monday night, which was yesterday. The report found that, well, it was sort of a strange report, but ultimately the report, uh, the integrity commissioner said that he received more complaints about this, uh, this uh, well, the tweets from Chris Vanderdoolen calling the, uh, the coronavirus the Chinese flu and blaming this on a murderous Chinese regime and so on and so forth. And ultimately, the recommendation from the integrity commissioner was that Chris Vanderdoolen apologize. He delete the tweets and he attend uh, he, he attends some uh, some tr some cultural training, failing which if he didn't do that within 60 days, the recommendation was that Chris Van that council vote to suspend Chris Vander Dolan's council pay for a period of two months. I'm actually going to give my opinion first on this and then I will uh, turn it over to my friends. So first off, I read the report. To be honest, I thought it was a pretty thin report. It did not. If you actually read through the report, it doesn't set out the basis for the authority of the integrity commissioner and what the integrity commissioner says that um, says that Chris Vanderdoolen breached. It says he got a bunch of complaints. People were upset. It people some people took it as racist, and therefore it's here's the punishment. I don't even know that he applies the code of conduct of the town of Essex and says what exactly this was breached. So I thought, I thought even though the conclusion was probably right, that this was, you know, insulting to certain, to members of the public and that therefore it's, uh, it's offside. And I thought you could have got to the conclusion. The report, in my view, didn't really do that. So I did think it was a thin report. Two other comments that I have on this. One of the things in, in or in directing that the that the tweet be re removed he talked about removing any tweets referencing the chinese flu something else and also the the murderous chinese regime now i can see saying you can't call this thing the chinese flu and look that's debatable as to whether or not that is so offside in canada that it's a breach but to me, for an integrity commissioner to say that you cannot blame this on the murderous Chinese regime, I think is a ridiculous overreach. I mean, are we now going to say that all councillors in any municipality can't have comments critical of foreign governments? I mean, that seems extreme to me. The final issue that I, that I want to point out is this debate went to Essex Council last night. The integrity commissioner spoke. And then Chris Vanderdolen gave a fiery speech and ultimately council voted to uh, approve the recommendations of the integrity commissioner in a six to one vote. Now, Chris Vanderdolen participated in that vote. I'm a little bit surprised that he participated in that vote because the recommendation included suspending his pay for two months. To me, 
that seems like something that he's got a direct pecuniary interest in. So I, and that seems to be offside of the Conflict of Interest Act. And that you can actually lose your seat for. So this might not be the end of the story here. I think that someone may want to have some fun attacking Chris Vanderdoel and bringing a complaint that this is a, that this was a conflict of interest. I think that the appropriate way to do this is you declare a conflict on the issue. You can then attend as a delegate to say your piece, but I don't know how you vote on it. So I think that that may, that may rear its ugly head. So Al, I'll go to you first to uh, talk about this and uh, defend your conservative if, buddy. I, I think, <laughs> just relax with it. I think if Essex Council wastes even half a millimeter, half a millisecond of time on whether this was a conflict to pursue more time, they are not doing their public service. How can they waste so much time on, on whether it was a con? Whoever was chairing the meeting should have made the decision on the spot if it was a conflict of interest or not and, and stated and said, okay, you know, if you're voting, then you're not. But if they let it through, you know, so be it. Look. At the end of the day, I said from the get-go, Chris Vanderdolen, had he said the flu from China, or he said the China flu, and he made it as far as geography, he'd have a much better way to stand on his position, because now he's talking about a geographic location, okay? And the geographic location of where certain variants, the Brazil variants and all, that is, that's a distinction of science where it came from, where it originated from. His problem is he said Chinese flu, making it look like it could be any Chinese person or, or it was an ethnic type of, of flu as opposed to a geographic location. And I think if he thought about it and he clarified and saying, I meant to say the China flu, that way he can clarify and still make his point and he would have been better off I mean, I know he's still standing on what he's standing to talk about the China regime, but notice he's talking about a location of the regime of, of that district. So again, he is talking regional, and I don't, I don't think he meant to offend the ethnic, but he kind of said it, so now he's sticking with it, and he's always had that, uh, you know, that stance of his opinions being an editor uh, in the Windsor Star for so many years and a color commentator. So, I mean, th this has been very interesting, but... I, I can't imagine that the people from Essex who are paying these taxpayer dollars for integrity commissions and for their counselors really want so much more time spent on a small tweet. I mean, it's got to end. And, and the last thing I think is now we're going to conflict of interest and more. I think the people will decide the next election whether Chris Vander Dolan deserves another term or not and let democracy play itself out and let's move on. So, yeah, so, 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 so Chris Vanderdolen had plenty of opportunities to walk this back in some way and just flat out refused to do it. Every opportunity he had to walk it back, he refused to do so. He's made this problem so much worse for himself. If he'd just done the right thing from day one saying, you know what, sorry, I realize my comment offended some, some people and, and I apologize even before the integrity commissioners uh, got involved, before the complaints came out, he could have done that. But every step he's doubled down. When I saw the news story saying that the Imperial Commission uh, Commissioner had found that he he should apologize, I thought, well, you know, this is it. Now he'll finally walk it back. But no, no, he he doubled down. He, he went even further with it. So um, I think it's a bit foolish on his part. I, I ultimately agree with you, Al. The voters will decide on this. But um, the only reason why it's still in the news now, uh, after all this time, is because Chris didn't do the right thing on, on day one and just walk it back. He likes being controversial. Daniel. 
is this a story that you think Chris Vanderdulen wants to keep alive? Like, do you think he he knows what he's doing here? And this is this is sort of like the Donald Trump doubling down, where it's not like he's just drawing a line in sand, but this is purely political to keep the attention on him. I, I think it might be. Um, it, it certainly stirs up his base and and the uh, um, conservative groups who, who agree that um, there is some tie back to China here. Uh, Christine, you want to weigh in there? Yes, I just wanted to say Chinese, Spanish, German, those those words have the same value. So China doesn't make it better than Chinese. It, we, we know that this has been the case that they have called these various uh, strains and things from countries um, and from places, uh, the variants as well. Um, that I, I don't quite understand, except that we all understand by the time that the comment was made, there had already been incidences all over North America against um, Asian people, not simply Chinese, just uh, Asian people, violence. And that in my opinion is something that should have weighed in his mind. And I think that's what people are reacting to that he is not sensitive to the things that were happening in our society that were addressing specifically one group or a group of people and, and, and on account of having simply stated something that is true, uh, if you want, that there was the virus and the virus came from a certain place. But that was enough to cause a backlash in our society. And we can say, oh, who are those people who would do terrible things to the Chinese community in our society on account of that? But we have noticed it. And that's the part I think that I don't understand why uh, Mr. Van Doolen continues to talk about the, the freedom of speech. Yes, he is free to speak, but he is also free to get the consequences from this. And when you have many, many people saying, hey, do you know what you've just done? It actually is causing hate towards us. Stop it. But he is not stopping. Um, so yes, I have heard as well about the um, Brazilian variant. And apparently there is no, no backlash. So that's the difference. He knew, he knew what he was saying. He also specifically um, talked about the possibility, you know, all of the Chinese, uh, I have to say, we ought to have someone from the Chinese community come and talk with us because I have heard people say that they have suffered from this and they have even, and they have told us this. So. Okay, I, okay. I have a, a, a dictionary up. If there was a flu from Canada and people were saying the Canadian flu, would Canadians get offended personally? They would say, you're saying Canadian flu, our country is Canada. It came from here. Yeah, sorry, there's some variant. You know, definition is inhabitant of Canada. So can, the, the, ge, the geography is there. If you type in Chinese, like Chinese flu that he said, it would be a person of Chinese descendant. So now it doesn't necessarily needs to be from China, but it could be the inheritant or the um, inhabitants or the culture of the people, the descendants. It's a fine line. 
And because Chinese is not necessarily geographical as much as Canadian is to Canada, that's the problem. It's like you're offending that it came from Chinese people as opposed to it came from China, the country. And that's why there is a greater offense in saying Chinese flu if there was a flu coming from China as opposed to a Canadian flu that might have come from Canada. It's a small distinction where one is geography. I think Brazil, you know, flu, the variant from Brazil, people see geographic locations. And for hundreds of years, they went back in the CDC and they always track the origin. The West Nile virus, where did it come from? Spanish well, flu, German Spanish, meat. Right. So there should, so in that aspect, Chris Vanderdolen's got a point if all he was referring to was the geographic location. Had he said the China flu or the flu that originated from China, I don't think there would be a fraction of the backlash. But the moment he used a word that people associate with, with race or culture or people as opposed to a geographic location, that's where the downfall came in because it, it now looks and appears racist to people as opposed to a geographic location. And that's the semantics of the problem. And he, he didn't backtrack on it. He didn't try to clarify on it. And that's where we are. He, he does think that the Chinese government, is, that there are questions to be asked pertaining to the Chinese government. And that's because they're in, they're, they're in charge and of China, though. Absolutely. And he feels that this is his freedom of, of speech right, which he is. He's free to have that, to, to hold that opinion. The point is that people have told him that that opinion is causing hurt to them. And he's not understanding that. I can't judge that. I am not from that particular uh, group. But that group of people has been getting that kind of uh, backlash to them. Like, like Chinese people don't like the China uh, dictators going on. Like Chinese people, Canadians, they look at China, they wish they were more democratic like Canada. It, it shouldn't be a political thing. He, he said Chinese flu, and many people will see that as you are now adding uh, fire to people who aren't educated enough to know that it was a geographical thing. Not every Chinese person is caring. Like, it's just ridiculous. And that was adding fuel to the fire of, of people's uh, uh, prejudiced visions. And as a leader, as a, as a city council, he should have clarified. And I'm not saying take everything he wants to say came from China. That would be accurate. But it's, it's a subtle word. We spend too much time talking about it. I hope... Essex Council will drop it. Chris Vanderdoel, I'm not surprised he's holding firm on his position. I don't think it's going any farther. Yeah, I, I there. Just saying, this is this is a new rule that somebody came up with in two, 2016. It had never been a rule for the past 300 years, and I ain't prepared to follow it because somebody came up with a new rule five years ago. I, I think that's what it comes comes down to. I think it was inappropriate because it's har it was unnecessarily harmful. But I agree, we can move on. So moving on down Highway Three from Essex to Leamington. A quick uh, news story. We'll probably talk about this more next week, but I thought we should tee it up this week. So there's a report back to Leamington Council. I think that we talked a number of months ago that Leamington had decided to give notice to the OPP that they were going to put their police services out for tender um, or out for a request for a proposal. 
proposals came back, I think both from Chatham and Windsor. Windsor was the preferred, Windsor police was the preferred proponent, but apparently administration at the town of Leamington says, even if you go with this Windsor option, it's gonna result in something like a 13% tax increase overnight for these increased services and administration is recommending to council, we don't think you should do that. We think you should go back to the OPP and try to keep the uh, OPP. I think what jumps out at me is they gave the OPP notice. The OPP, apparently their contract ends, their service contract ends, I think in like three or four weeks. I'm not even sure you can just go back to the OPP and say, we changed our mind. I mean, presumably they would have reassigned those officers. So it's gonna be interesting to see whether Leamington is in a complete pickle here. Um, but I guess that's where things are. Let's go uh, quickly. We'll talk about this before closing out the show with a couple good news stories. So Al, what do you think about this policing story? I think they need to save money where they can and make efficiencies where they can. They need to relook at it. I'm, I'm not opposed to it, but they got to do it quickly, especially if they're, <laughs> they're up against the clock and they're going back on some decisions. So Christine, any thoughts? Yes, they're saying that, uh, in fact, the whole reason for wanting the uh, Windsor Police Force to help them out was for enhanced policing. And in fact, the uh, OPP would be able to offer this starting 2022. So uh, given that there are the, the costs would cause such a, a big tax hike, it does seem logical to want to keep the OPP. Again, it'll be like uh, you said, Daniel, I mean, is the OPP able to uh, to jump back in and or are those uh, positions, have they been reassigned? Although I think maybe, was it not going to be the OPP officers who were going to do the job for the uh, Windsor police then? I, I don't think so. I mean, I know that when Amos when. Amherstburg got rid of their police service and became oh. the Windsor police services. Those right. officers became Windsor police officers. Right. But I, I, I don't know that there was an understanding that I, I don't think that the OPP officers would become Windsor police officers. Mm -hmm. I presume they would just be uh, assigned to other communities. But but I, I, I don't know that for sure. So look, this is I think this is ultimately going to be a story that we are going to be following over the next uh, week or two, because it's always uh, worth covering when there's some news out of the county. And we've got a couple county stories now. So uh, Christine, why don't you take us into our last uh, two good news stories to uh, close out the show? Well, the Windsor's, Pe Windsor's Peace Fountain is to return to Rion Park and it will be brought in right at the, it will be operational on Victoria Day weekend. If all goes as planned, this is 20 a 24 ton mechanism that is removed from the water every fall and brought back into the water just for the um, Victoria Day weekend. And uh, this actually costs the city of Windsor quite a big, uh, a pretty penny, $70,000 annually. However, I know that it's been there for 40 years. It's been, it's very beautiful. It's, uh, it's open operational from 8, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. And of course, it's named in honor of a local labor leader, Charles E. Brooks, who was murdered in 1977. Um, so beautiful fountain. It is the only one uh, in, um, in uh, international waters. And that, so that's something special that we have here in Windsor. So that's going to be uh, coming up uh, in the next, uh, next long, uh, after the long, we at the long weekend. And LaSalle restaurants are finding a way of having an all you can eat 
uh, drive-in uh, experience. And I think it's really uh, fun to hear. So there are two of these restaurants in, uh, in Tecumseh, I guess, no, sorry, in LaSalle. And um, basically people can order, or like they, you have to order ahead of time and you have a specific uh, place to park in the restaurant's parking lot at Kona. And um, this is the Kona Sushi branch in LaSalle and you can, can make repeated orders by text and the food is brought to you by a server in disposable containers. And the Latown uh, La Grill restaurant just next door is going to be offering similar deals with all you can eat brunches on weekends. So it's just a way of kind of not feeling as constrained with all our, our confinement and, and you know, being, uh, being indoors all the time and or picking up our meals. This is a way to have a drive-in experience a little bit like the old fashioned drive-in theaters uh, no, you can't bring your lawn chairs and sit around your car. It is truly in the car, but it makes it a little bit special. Uh, Christine, I love these stories. The only thing I want to add is the $70,000 it costs the city to run the Peace Fountain can so easily be offset because you are going to have tens of thousands of people going down to the riverfront to do it, to, to watch the Peace Fountain. All you need is two large display boards and sell 10 advertising spots on each one and say that these advertisers are sponsoring and you put in nice lights inside there and you will offset the cost because you have eyeballs coming to, uh, you know, something to see. So what's the big deal to put, you know, who's sponsoring it? And that's it. I mean, ideas like this will, will, you know, can make money and you've gotten attraction Leverage it a little bit, a little bit of common sense, business sense. The yes. piece mounted, pr presented by Platinum Realty. There you go, Al. Hey, the Toshiba Platinum team, I would I would gladly sponsor anything longer riverfront. I believe there should be commercialization. There should be more funding. By the way, I was down by the river. Uh, people were riding the scooters. I was People were riding the scooters left and right, man. I think it's going to be a big success. Oh, fun it was to see people enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Yes, I saw this as well. So that's a very positive sign, yes. Commercialize the riverfront, make money. Dave, any closing thoughts on either of these two stories? Uh, if you're gonna go for all you can eat sushi, go now while it's cool. I don't recommend it in uh, 90 plus degree weather, um, but I'm glad to see that the sushi restaurants are, are hopefully um, getting some, some uh, much needed publicity and, and uh, sales. So congrats to them on that. Yeah, two good news stories. I don't have a good joke, so I'm just going to close out the show. And uh, <laughs> say, uh, thank you once again for joining us on Windsor's Inside Pulse. Please remember to uh, like us on Facebook and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Stay safe, stay healthy, have a great week, and we will see you next time. And thanks again to Ron Dunn for joining us.